When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. Happy New Year, man. How are you? Happy New Year. Chilling, man. How, as per usual. How about yourself? Um, doing pretty well. I, I can't really complain. Um, I'm glad we're, we're doing a uh, historical podcast on a day where nothing at all politically is happening. Not, nothing that I can think of. Yeah. A very slow period politically. It's Right now, it's about 10 p.m., Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, the what is it, the fifth or the sixth? January, January, 6th. January sixth. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing going on politically as we record this podcast right now. De- so I guess that means nothing. there's nothing to really talk about nope. going on in a political landscape. So we can nope. just skip right ahead and and talk about what we were we were planning. Well, actually, there is one thing that I can bring up, and that is that it looks like Kim Kardashian is getting a divorce from Kanye West. Yeah. Shut the front door. Yep. So that's a thing. I don't know where that came from, that 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 phrase. Um, For the front door? <laughs> shut the front door. But yeah, we're... So the responses that we've been getting from our um, our history podcast lately and um, I guess you guys should be expecting history podcasts since the name of this podcast is called Bro History. Um, we kind of mix and match. We do some political stuff. We do foreign policy stuff. And lately we've been trying to focus a little bit more on the historical podcast. Um, I know specifically a lot of you guys, the ancient world, right? specifically the ancient world, mainly because when doing research and preparing episodes, uh, you get stuck in these rabbit holes. So you'll find the topic. And you'll be like, oh, well, you know what else would be an interesting topic? And then you kind of build from there. That's how you learn more. And that's how we try to put on the show. So we're going to continue to uh, to do these episodes on, on ancient history. Obviously, not going to be doing it forever. However, it will probably be a reoccurring theme for now right. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I've, I've really enjoyed doing these over the past two months. And and the responses have been great. You know, yeah. uh, we can see that with the download numbers. We can see that with the reviews that we've been getting, which, by the way, thank you very much. I think we just hit 400 reviews uh, very recently. So that's really awesome. Keep that going. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll keep rocking with this for a while um, until we either, either get bored or you tell us to stop. <laughs> and right now, I think people are getting a little mentally ill in the political landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly am not eager to become one of the mentally ill, so I'm tuning out. Yep. I'm, I'm waiting until, at the very least, until the inauguration to, uh, to start following politics again, because yeah. it's a bit, uh, it's a bit cheeky out there. Maybe we'll discuss it at the end of the show if we have time. Well, there's nothing to discuss, as you said in the beginning. Oh yeah, the there's show, nothing so. to discuss what's going there's on. There's absolutely nothing. There's nothing. There is nothing going on. Um... But yeah, our last episode, we left off with the 
Assyrian Empire. And if you missed last episode, they were the regional hegemon in the Near East from the 10th century to the 7th century. Mm -hmm. And in addition to being a world power, the Assyrians were bastards, total bastards. So they Mm -hmm. had a highly sophisticated military and were absolutely brutal to the people who they conquered. And they forged a massive empire with hundreds of different ethno-linguistic groups. They hold this empire together by using terror as a political weapon. Right. So, for example, the Assyrians, if some uh, city staged a rebellion, the Assyrian army would show up, slaughter a bunch of people, and in some cases they would exterminate the population. You know, they would take out the leadership of the city and then they would publicly torture the leadership in front yeah. of people. Yeah. And um, in addition to that, I think the you know, if if we started seeing the national identity of one of their subjects getting too strong or there was too many insurrections happening uh, from one particular group of people, they would go ahead and, you know, besiege that city and deport everybody and basically spread out the rest of the the population of that one city or that one ethnic group to a bunch of different parts of their empire. Yeah, and these tactics worked for hundreds of years until they it, it backfired on them. Um, in 626 BC, they had a civil war over the line of succession, and it leads to the subject states seizing the opportunity to, to oust them as their imperial rulers. And an alliance forms, mainly between the Medes and the Babylonians, and mm-hmm. they effectively they destroyed Assyria, and they, they burned down their capital, Asher and their largest city, Nineveh. So these cities are basically wiped off the map. And where we were getting at last episode is that with the destruction of Nineveh, Nineveh at that time in the 7th century BC had a population of like maybe 200,000 people, like Mm -hmm. maybe 500,000 people. We don't really know because that's how utterly destroyed it was. (laughs) Yeah. We don't know, but we do know that it was a... It was a thriving metropolis that was taken away by the old world. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to link the the old world of the Near East to the Western world, if that's possible. Right. And or, or at least the infancy of the, the Western world. The infancy world. of the Western world. And we're doing this. There's a huge problem with this, though. And here's the challenge. We're relying on the ancient historians. Mm-hmm. And the ancient historians that we're using are the ones from Greece. We're dealing with highly biased historians. And that's a major problem when it comes to, right. to ancient sources is that they're trying to promote the, the uh, morality of that current society and right. promulgate the values of and, and create some type of national identity. To that, that comes point. out in a lot of their, their writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, even to this day, people think that Homer was a person. Homer Simpson, <laughs> Homer, Homer, who wrote about the Iliad. Oh yeah, it that wasn't <laughs> it wasn't it didn't write anything. It was an oral story that was told down over and over again. And Homer was more like a brand right. than an actual right. guy. Right. And and to that point, I think you know we also, especially in the case of the Assyrians, for a long time we rely on religious texts. You know, which you know are also of questionable historical accuracy. Uh, for a while, we didn't. We weren't exactly sure if the Assyrians were real or not uh, until we started digging stuff up um, and doing like archaeology. So, you know, when we blend both historians with an agenda that often are more concerned with making a cool story than 
you know, with actually telling the, you know, the cold, hard facts on the ground. And we also take into consideration some of the ancillary texts, things like, you know, biblical uh, and oral traditions. It makes it a little bit difficult to figure this out entirely. So, you know, heavy asterisks on a lot of this stuff we're about to talk about because, you know, who knows? Who knows? Even even the best historians or the most accomplished historians don't really know. Um, but we're trying to we're, we're going to try to bring this into direct into the direction of the inventor of the historian profession, Herodotus. Mm-hmm. And he tells a story of the Greco-Persian Wars. So we're going to try best to paraphrase basically his writings and, and his narrative and then poke holes as we go through to some of his exaggerations. Right. Because I think most people, what they think of is they think of the movie 300. <laughs> yeah. Which was a great movie, which was an entertaining, I, fun movie to watch, but I liked it. <laughs> I it's an very enjoyable, entertaining film. However, that's ridiculous. Like that's not <laughs> historically what was probably close to, to what ha- what what actually happened there. <laughs> Let's move forward. So, right. um the reason why we bring up the Assyrian Empire is because they created the political structures that let new empires take its place after the fall of Nineveh in, in 612 BC you have three major players in this region so you have the the Chaldeans the Neo-Babylonians who dominate uh, Mesopotamia so central and southern Iraq you have the Lydians who were in uh, Asia Minor so modern day Turkey um, and then you also have the Medes and the Medes are located in in most of modern day Iran and, and, and northern Iraq. Totally. And and I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Chaldeans because they, they have a, like a special place in, in our podcast. Uh, a little while ago when we were covering the elections, uh, we went to uh, Trump's website to see all the people, uh, all the coalitions of people that we had. And among many of them that we all uh, thought were ancient and long since uh, dead civilizations, the Chaldeans were one of them. Um, they're also known as the Neo-Babylonians. Um, and, uh, they, as you pointed out, Henry dominated Mesopotamia. They, they were the last of the Mesopotamian empires to be ruled by monarchs that were native to Mesopotamia. Uh, and this was a huge comeback for Babylon, quote unquote, you know, uh, they hadn't been in charge, at least Mesopotamian peoples hadn't been in charge for like a thousand years. Um, and there was a huge population growth and resurgence of Babylonian culture and art and architecture that sprung up in this period. Uh, and the empire kind of ended up getting a really bad rap as you, as you pointed out, you know, so, uh, they end up conquering Palestine, uh, or Israel, Palestine and, and, um, Egypt, parts of Egypt at least. Uh, and, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, we learned that the, uh, that they end up taking Jews as captives. Um, so the kind of short story about that one, you know, we got to talk about Nebuchadnezzar the second who ends up crushing Jerusalem and, you know, putting all the Jewish people in captivity. Uh, so the short version of the story is that the Chaldean or the Neo-Babylonian empire, uh, they take over all the areas that we're covering that we were just covering in the last few episodes. So Mesopotamia, the Levant, uh, parts of the Sinai Peninsula, et cetera. And basically to prevent, you know, Jerusalem from being destroyed, uh, the current king at the time, uh, King, I'm going to butcher this one, Jehoiakim of Judah, of the kingdom of Judah, 
He basically switched uh, sides from Egypt to Babylon. They were originally allied with Egypt, and now they switched over to Babylon, knowing that you know Nebuchadnezzar was crazy. Uh, and then in like 600, 601, uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically unsuccessfully attempted to uh, invade Egypt and got spanked, and you know got pushed back, suffered heavy losses, and that failure basically led to a bunch of rebellions in the Levant. Uh, including uh, King Jehoiakim from Judah that we just talked about, uh, who ended up stop he just stopped paying him tribute. So he stopped giving him money. Uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar got pissed, turned back around, laid siege to Jerusalem. That eventually fell in 597, but uh, it was like a, like a soft fall. So Nebs, uh, who I'm going to call him as Nebs from now on, he, uh, he basically installs... Jehoiakim's nephew, Zedekiah, as the king. And dude was just 21 years old, which is crazy. Uh, but, you know, Zedekiah ends up, you know, flipping sides also. So he goes back to Egypt too. At this point, Nebs is super pissed and he besieges uh, Jerusalem again. Uh, the second siege was basically the last one uh, that Babylon did, that uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire did. They totally raised Jerusalem and uh, the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. And, you know, as the Hebrew Bible will tell you, uh, they spread out the the tribes all across the lands uh, at that point. Um, very interesting story on uh, an interesting empire uh, that maybe in a future state we'll, we'll cover. I think Neb- Nebs here is an interesting uh, uh, kind of point to this story. Yeah, and it wasn't until Cyrus the Great of Persia, which we're going to get into, um, actually frees him and says, you got to let the Jews go home. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the Neo-Babylonians, though, the other major power was Lydians. So the Lydians, they're up in Turkey, um, Asia Minor, Anatolia. And um, what's interesting, and in in like libertarians or anyone who's interested in, in um, economics or especially Austrian economics, they're the first to coin money. Money. So... Um, Mises, his most famous contribution to economics, or at least one of his most famous contributions, was his uh, regression theorem, which demonstrated that initially money must have been a commodity. Um, It couldn't be something that was created by fiat, by the state. Um, It had to be something that people already valued. We see through most of history up until the the 20th century, at least, Every money that a society used was was some type of commodity, and usually over time, um, that society would gravitate to towards precious metals, mainly because precious metals are scarce and, and they're and they're portable and they're easily divisible. So they have the characteristics that make good money. So the Lydians they were the first to take the precious metals and then stamp them with some type of official seal that would reduce the transaction cost in commerce. Because if you have an emblem or a seal that people recognize or, or trust, people will say, okay, I know that this is uh, this coin is made out of real metal and it's not a, you know, it's not a counterfeit. Right. Um, and they were an incredibly wealthy empire. Um, in addition to those, you have the Medes. They controlled the land that connected East and West Asia. So they dominated modern-day Iran and then northern Iraq and and, and parts of western Turkey. Um, In southern Iran, um, there there were small Persian kingdoms, and a lot of people kind of brush off the Persians as as just smaller players on the world stage. 
but that all changes when with with Cyrus the Great. Right. Um, Cyrus the Great he revolts against the Medes and he wins. And not only does he win, but he takes over their central government. And in doing so, he inherits the the wars that the Medes were already having with the Lydians. So Crassus, the king of Lydia, he started annexing territory from the Medes when they figured out that they were losing the war to Cyrus. Therefore, when Cyrus actually takes control of the central government, he tries to preserve the new empire. So mm-hmm. he marches on, on Crassus. You, you've heard of the term Richest Crassus? Yeah, totally. Richest that, Crassus. That, that's where that comes from, right? That's, that's where it comes from. So this is where you get the story about, um, it's like a famous story that uh, Crassus gets a, a message from the Oracle Delphi saying, if you go to war with, with Cyrus, she means you, you will destroy a great empire. But... He took the meaning is that okay, like it looks like I got the uh, I got the green light from the oracle. She says I'm going to win. I'm going to destroy this great empire. But it actually meant that he would destroy his own empire. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So it was like an M Night Shyamalan twist. <laughs> Side Ooh. note on that: wasn't the oracle just like high on like gases from a from like a from the cave that she chilled in? Wasn't that the story about that? That she was just Probably. high all the time, or she was just making shit up, or both. She's just super, super high. And making maybe, shit up. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe she was an actual oracle. Or maybe was aliens. Right. You can see like, yeah, mm-hmm. you'll definitely win. Um, you'll, you'll destroy that great empire. And then when she's wrong, she's like, and the great empire, empire was you. Like, I didn't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She just tries to take it back. Right, right, right. So when Cyrus, um, when Cyrus conquered Lydia, um, what he inherits are the Greek colonies that were in Turkey. Right. And you might not know about this, but there were a ton of colonies in that area. And the Greeks were pretty good at colonizing, um, but not like how you would uh, think of like French or English, you know, carving up Africa. Um, see, Greece was not scrambling for their political pursuits. <laughs> well, Call maybe a little, little bit, but just we're, bring, know, we're bringing civilization to these savages. <laughs> It's it was a little different. I mean, I think the motivations were similar. You know, Greece was super mountainous, uh, and it didn't have like a lot of uh, land available for farming. Um, and as a result, a lot of city states um, would sponsor the creation of these colonies outside of the Greek mainland um, that they would then populate with a bunch of Greeks, uh, and in turn, they would just be um, you know allied with one of these major city states. They would they would basically be independent, uh, and they would be run on their own. Um, but they would pay some, you know, some dues, some, you know, some homage, if you will. Uh, and they would set up really good trading situations with, uh, you know, with the city state. So it was like colonizing light, right? Uh, and that's that's where these uh, uh, city states in, in Asia Minor pop up, right? So um, Ionia was one of them, uh, one of the important ones. But uh, we have a bunch of them kind of dotted on the uh, on the coastline there. Uh, of the Asia Minor, um, and those were absorbed into the Lydian Empire. And so uh, when the Persians and Cyrus dominated the Lydians, they also inherited, um, you know, those Greek city-states. Yeah, exactly. And um, Cyrus, a lot of his campaigns when he was when he was uh, king of kings were were wars that he inherited from previous empires, but also a lot of his wars were 
just um, putting down rebellions because mm-hmm. there was a lot of there was a lot of parts of the empire that was trying to break off when he was when he was king. Um, that happens and, when you expand your empire super quickly, you know. That's what happens, and one of the main reasons why he's able to create this empire is because a lot of the structures were were already in place from the from back when the Assyrians existed. Right. So that's how that was even the, the Assyrians made it possible for someone like Cyrus. And and just a, a quick note, the Persian Empire was not like the Assyrian Empire. Right. It, it, the the Achaemenids viewed themselves as enlightened rulers because they like they allowed religious freedom and they supported, you know, people's rights. Uh, even the ones that they had conquered previously, so they were very like very woke for their time. I think you would, you could easily say, yeah. And he Cyrus he eventually dies on campaign. What was the story uh, Herodotus told about this? So yeah, this comes from Herodotus. So he dies fighting in Central Asia against some Amazon woman. And so I forget the exact story, but it's like some, not an Amazon woman, but some uh, female leader of, uh, of this uh, Scythian tribe. Mm-hmm. And he tries to marry her and she's like insulted about being seen as some type of like political uh, pawn. Mm-hmm. And she ends up going to war with him and, and she kills him on the battlefield. It's something very poetic and mm-hmm. um it doesn't sound like it actually happened. He could have just died in his bedroom, as far as we know. But that's the <laughs> a story that people go with. He died in this kind of weird. Uh, he he died fighting Wonder Woman. I got it. Yeah, mm-hmm. he died fighting Wonder Woman. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So after he dies, his son Cambyses becomes becomes king, and he further expands the empire over to Egypt. And allegedly, he's assassinated. In this, allegedly, I use it, quote unquote, because there's a lot of different stories. Uh, So again, we don't really know what's true. But his assassination story is incredibly bizarre and weird. And it's too long to get into. But essentially, Darius, the king who comes after him. Darius. You can call him Darius or Darius. Um, he claims that Cambyses is an imposter, that his brother, he's a fake king, and um, he stages a coup against the fake king, Cambyses, because he had actually killed the real Cambyses, but mm. it's probably not true. He probably just made that up. A lot of this is Some, probably made up. <laughs> a, lot of this, a lot of this is probably made up. Yeah. Um. But Darius, he takes the Persian empires to a new height when he, the successor, Darius I, Darius the Great. Um, so he expands the empire into Cyrene, which is Libya, uh, into the Caucasus, so Georgia and Azerbaijan, and then Indus, um, India and Pakistan, and then the areas of Scythia, um, in the areas of the north of the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. And something important to note that is going to set this campaign against the Greeks up on his campaigns um, in Scythia, uh, it involved sending an army around the Western Black Sea to, to strike at the Scythians at the rear. And during this campaign, the Persians end up seizing um, parts in, in mainland Europe. So Thrace, which is modern-day Bulgaria, mm. and then Macedon. And they, they make it a client state. Um, now, the question is, how does the 
where does the, the Greco-Persian War start? Like, how does this relate to it? Yep. So I, I think I, just to quickly surmise the the differences between the Greeks and the Persians, because I think it's super important. Um, the the Achaemenid uh, dynasty, the the Persians, you know, um, they, they ruled this uh, particular uh, area. You know, in in you know um, all of uh, uh, Mesopotamia and all of the places that we have been talking about for these these last couple of episodes. Um, and as I pointed out before, they, they saw themselves as an enlightened rulership. You know, they allowed a lot of religious freedom, but they were an empire, a unified state. Uh, and that's starkly contrasted with the Greeks who at this time were not a unified people. They, they weren't one thing, you know, we're, we're loosely calling them Greeks now because, you know, that's, you know, it's easier, it's easier to think of them that way. But I think, you know, a lot of these people had more allegiances to, you know, their city states than they did to like, say, an ethnicity, like being Greek. Um, and, uh, you know, I think each of them had their own systems of government. Uh, many of them were the precursors to the democracies that we see today. Uh, and they controlled not only the city itself, but also the surrounding farmland. And these city states, um, you know, often had rivalries against one another, even fighting each other, right? And the most powerful of those two were Sparta and Athens, which we're definitely going to talk a lot about. Uh, but they were major rivals, you know. Um, and in that uh, era, I think their, like I said, their primary loyalty, the Greek primary loyalty, is that of their city state, whoever they're a citizen of, which is like very, very different, um, you know, from the, from the Persian style, right? And and kind of a far departure from a lot of the things that we had been talking about previously. Uh, and I think basically that that's that's good setup for what was happening. And by 499 BC, the Greek city states they, they you know that that were in Turkey, the uh, in in Asia Minor, like we were saying, when they were uh, staging those revolts against the the basically the Greek um, uh, uh, rulers that were appointed by the Persians to run those cities, uh, and you know the Persian Empire came down on them like a fucking truck, right? They came down to crush the rebellions. Uh, specifically, the Ionian Greeks uh, were one of the ones that uh, were kind of acting up during this time, and they they ended up calling back to their homies in the mainland Greek. Remember back when I was saying how the Greeks would set up their systems of colonization? So uh, the Ionians were really, really uh, closely tied to uh, Athens uh, and um, I think also Eritrea. Um, but during this time, pretty much everybody refused to help them, which was kind of sad, um, except for Athens and Eritrea. Uh, and both of them ended up sending ships and money and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but the rebellion ended up pretty badly, uh, for the Ionians. Uh, it goes on for a couple of years. Uh, and then eventually the, uh, Persians end up losing their, their, uh, foothold in, in Macedon and in Thrace. Uh, so to, I think it took five years total for uh, Darius or Darius um, and the Persians to regain complete control of the region. And once it was all settled, uh, King Darius, he decided he wanted to punish Athens and Eritrea. Why? Because, you know, if he felt like if he didn't, that, well, they would do it again, that they would offer the Ionians and, and the rest of the Greek city-states support again to revolt and rebel. Um, or at least that's one of the uh, <laughs> that's one of the stories that had been told. I know there's a few others as well. It's most likely a pretext just to incorporate Greece into the empire. Right. Like, <laughs> like more Greeks expansion. Are a threat. They're mm -hmm. a threat to our 
uh, imperial hegemony. Uh, we need to put an end to this immediately. That's what I would, that's what it most likely is. It's all um, geopolitical. You know, I think, I think both are probably true in their own respect and they can't just leave them alone because they did help support a rebellion. And at the same time, they probably also wanted to conquer more land just because, <laughs> you know, that was, that was, that's an empire, you know? Well, the, the campaign that they tell that, that they plan, um, kind of shows their cards a little bit. So the Persians in response, um, so the war ends, the the Ionian revolt ends in 493 BC. So it lasts um, like about five years or so. And it's really Mm -hmm. bad. A lot of these city states are just leveled. Um, But a lot of them are actually given, um, they're granted um, pardons where um, the, the Greeks, they were rebelling because of they hated the Greek tyrant system where they'd have these brutal guys who would just, uh, there was no type of democracy or governmental structure in place. Um, and nothing they were used to. States right? wanted those back. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were actually granted that in a lot of cases. Um, the cities that were causing the most trouble were leveled, but other cities that were fight, even fighting against them were granted clemency. Um, but the campaign that they, they the Purges plan is that they they want to reclaim their lost territory in Europe and in, in mainland Europe that they lost, meaning that their army was going to go north over the Dardanelles Strait, um, which would allow them to resecure Thrace and, and Macedonia, right? Um, or Macedonia, you can pronounce it either way. Macedonia. Um, I pronounce it Macedonia, but more people get upset when I say Macedonia than Macedonia, so I changed. <laughs> even though Macedonia is the correct way. Um, in one of the accepted ways, you mean? One of the accepted ways. So in 492 BC, um, the Persian general uh, Mardonius, he, he sweeps around the coast and then he secures the Aegean Islands and then he resubjugates Thrace and then he turns Macedon back into a vassal state. Um, all things were going really well during this campaign until there was a humongous storm around Mount Alth- Althos. Damn you, Poseidon. Poseidon, (laughs) he causes a storm and he destroys the Persian fleet. Right. So kind of like the Japanese kamikaze that destroyed the Mongolian fleet on their way Mm -hmm. to when when the Mongolian were trying to incorporate Japan. Right. The the OG kamikaze, by the way, not not the World War II ones. I think people get that. Well, maybe they don't. Our audience isn't that dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, the, the storm, the kamikaze. Mm-hmm. So according to Herodotus, 300 ships were destroyed and 20,000 men were killed in this, in this catastrophic naval loss. Um, and even though you shouldn't take Herodotus at face value, the storm was most likely extremely disruptive. Right. Um, around the same time, there's a Thracian tribe that conducts a night raid on a Persian military camp. And this raid was apparently bad enough for the Persians to conclude their operations for the year. So they um, got up they, they and they, they packed their bags and they left. For a but whole year. <laughs> for an entire year. Wow. Despite the setbacks, though, the Persians at the very least had achieved some of their goals by annexing Thrace and and uh, reestablishing ties with Macedon. Uh, but more importantly, they secured 
a northern passage for the following campaign that would come two years later. A land so bridge? The, the land bridge. They would. They have it. It's an easier <laughs> to, to go up north over Turkey and then in through into, into mainland Greece. Yeah. Into mainland Greece rather mm-hmm. than risk hitting, getting hitting spanked by storm. Poseidon again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. During this... So during this period um, of there's like a two year waiting period, and during this this waiting period, uh, Darius tried to Greek get, get the Greek city states to submit peacefully. Um, it's important to note again that the Persians were not like the Assyrians, so mm-hmm. they were not genocidal maniacs. They would lead with the carrot instead of the stick. Um, so they were often just shockingly tolerant to other cultures and religions and. As long as you paid your tribute, and you know your tribute would be gold and and uh, offering up soldiers for the empire, um, you would be good. Um, the Persians would create satraps, and then these satraps would have local autonomy, um, but were were kind of kept by a web of royal administrators, a lot like how ancient Rome governed it. Um, their empires, the Persians set up the template for a lot of future empires, mm-hmm. uh, such as the Romans. But um, the, what they did is that they sent ambassadors over to, to Greece, and the symbolic way of asking for submission is asking for earth and water. You give me earth, wind, and fire. Um, <laughs> earth and water. So most Greek city-states, they bent the knee. However, Athens and Eritrea, they couldn't because they had already sponsored the Ionian Revolt. 
And allegedly, one of the main reasons for the campaign was revenge on Athens and Eritrea. So they're like, well, we can't submit to them because they're going to kill us anyway. So when the Persian ambassadors come knocking on their door, they send ambassadors anyway. I don't know what the terms were. Um, like, I don't know if the, the terms were just go kill yourself. Uh, but they ended up <laughs> killing. Definitely didn't want to be one of those uh, uh, one of those um, ambassadors, one of those uh, royal uh, uh, go-betweens at this time because a lot of them got fucked. Yeah, so the ambassadors to both Athens and Eritrea were both murdered. And back in the day, I mean, even now, if you kill an ambassador or some type of diplomat, that's usually a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's usually that's, that's like akin to war, basically. <laughs> yeah, that is usually akin to war. Um, if you assassinate a, somebody on a diplomatic trip, um, usually that means that you are uh, not accepting their terms and mm -hmm. giving a fuck you back to the home empire. It's, it's more than just saying no. It's like, fuck no. You know? It's like, let's do it right now. Let's do it. Let's take Let's do it. You want some of this? <laughs> come at me, bro. You, want, you, you come at me. You want some of this? Um, Sparta did the same thing. Um, the famous story of, of tossing the Persian, the, the Persian diplomats into a well. Is that real, this actually? Is <laughs> <laughs> this is Sparta. This is madness. <laughs> um, is that I, real? For real? Is that, that actually not. happened? Maybe. This is the story that we're told that's used in classical yeah. Greek, within classical Fucking Greek history. So it's a history that we have. Al Gore invented the internet, right? <laughs> it's a system of tubes. The system of tubes. <laughs> so the, the Persians, they finally launched their campaign in, uh, in 490 BC. And But what what's strange about this is... In, and I, something I don't really understand is that they decide not to take the northern route that they established the last time they their last campaign in, in Europe. Um, they island hop over the Aegean Sea. Yeah, this is arguably going to be their downfall, really. That and, is a really bad decision. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So we, we don't really know what the size of this Persian army was. Um most historians they estimate it somewhere between twenty thousand to sixty to, to sixty thousand men, and I mean that's a pretty big estimate mm -hmm. with ancient numbers. It's a big swing. It's a big. It's a big swing. It's a big difference between twenty thousand and sixty thousand soldiers. And I forgot what Herodotus said. Herodotus says something like in the millions. Yeah, it's like ten uh, billion people, millions of Persians <laughs> marching for my for two thousand miles. <laughs> the distance between Greece and Persia is like <laughs> ten hundred miles. Yeah. <laughs> it's not two two thousand miles. I don't yeah. know the exact distance, but it's not. It's not far. It's not that far. It is far. It's um, far to fucking walk, and it's far to to you know boat on a primitive boat. But grand scheme of things, it's not that big. It was. It took a long time to get from play, from A to B, though. <laughs> Come on, the first season of Game of Thrones, it took them. Like three months to get to Winterfell, to King's Landing. Right, and that's got to be. And then they were doing it every fifteen same seconds. Yeah. <laughs> by season eight, um, they were doing it every fifteen minutes. So you know. yeah, by where's the consistency on this? 
Anyway. So, all right, back to Herodotus. So, yeah, he says something like the millions, uh, an obvious exaggeration. So this army sweeps across the sea. They they uh, take island after island, and then they finally, finally land uh, on the island that has Eritrea, and they sack it. And mm-hmm. once they sack it, they make their way down to Athens. And the game plan is to hit Athens in a pincher move. So... They land at Marathon and um, unload some of their army, and then the fleet continues on to the city. In response, the Athenians, they send out a force to bottle up the Persians at their beachhead, where they have the high ground. Stop! Anakin, I have the high ground! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> oh, that's a great scene that's a great movie reference. <laughs> it's over anakin I you underestimate my power <laughs> <laughs> i'm fighting for democracy you are my brother anakin <laughs> <laughs> sorry but you you i think you know probably a little bit more about the battle of marathon than i do or... yeah yeah totally totally so um like you said uh they they had dropped off a, a bunch of troops um at marathon um, and wanted to kind of circle around to get to the uh, to the city, but uh, Athens actually got a heads up about this. Uh, they knew that they were coming, um, probably because it took them so long, and they were island hopping, and they they got word of it, you know, pretty early on. They knew what was coming. So uh, again, we don't know very much about the numbers of actual people. I, what I was reading um, put uh, Athens outnumbered two to one. Um, th- that sounds approximately right but who knows uh but uh, you know they they were they weren't dumb right so they they started asking for help they uh asked actually asked sparta for help um they're one of their main uh rivals um but at the time funny enough they were conveniently having a religious festival so they passed uh at least initially no Um, they were like we gotta wait till the moon's in the right place (laughs) yeah so it was like (laughs) sorry sorry uh it was just was kind of a joke i wish i could use that as an excuse for like everyday life yeah it's like oh, you know what the moon isn't isn't right right now give me give me a fortnight um but yeah so like they, they were putting out sorry some mom i can't visit you the moon's not right <laughs> no it's fucked up yeah. <laughs> it's, a joke. it's a joke mom um, um yeah so, so so like they put out some feelers and they were trying to get some some reinforcements but they knew that you know, they were got a bit of an uphill battle, but they had the high ground, right? So the, the Athenian strategy was to keep the Persian army pinned down right then and there at the beachhead, you know, uh, with a pincer move of their own, right? Um, basically trying to block both exits to the plain, right? They wanted to stop that horde at the beaches so that they couldn't pincer the city of Athens, you know, um, uh, on the other side. But there was a bunch of disadvantages, right? So their disadvantages um, were that... Um, Athens's troops were vulnerable to attack by cavalry, um, and the Persians had a lot of cavalry, right? Um, so, but they had sent them on the ships around the other way, right? So all that that was there was these just regular foot troops, right? Um, Persian infantry. So they knew that they needed to stop the infantry right then and there because this is the only time that they can actually have an advantage, um, and. Uh, Basically, it reinforced this defensive strategy for the Athenians, like hold the line right here uh, and wait out 
until the moon is good for the Spartans to come and help, uh, as well as some other Greek people. Um, and they also use their geography as an advantage too. So the location that they chose to, to like set up shop, uh, you know, had a bunch of marshes and mountains. I think it was like the southeast, no, the southwest had a bunch of mountains, and the northeast had a bunch of marshes. And you know, right there on the southeast is where the uh, Persians actually landed and set up shop. So they were able to stick themselves between like a rock and a wet place, uh, so to speak. Uh, it was really good, like a uh, uh, tactical advantage there. Um, and also a couple more things. So the per- Persian infantry, now we're talking about infantry, not, not um, the cavalry. They were uh, evidently pretty lightly armored uh, and they weren't really a good match for the Athens troops on like a one-to-one, like hand-to-hand kind of combat. Uh, Athenians, uh, they, they took up a really good defensive position here at Marathon and um you know, the, the Persians were a little bit hesitant to attack the Athenians head on, probably because they knew that they didn't have their cavalry around to help them out, uh, because that's what they were used to. That's the way that they were used to fighting. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more in a second about like why. Let me not get ahead of myself on the successes and downfalls. Uh, let's see. Um, so they, they, they were at this beachhead, the Persians were hesitating a bit. They had set up shop. Um, you know, they set up a fairly wide, uh, um, uh, uh, front line. It was pretty thin, but it was wide enough to like hold off the people long enough. Uh, and ultimately the time worked in their favor because every day that they waited, um, that they held them off, it, it basically let the Spartans, um, you know, build up the time to get over. Um, and so, you know, like at the time, the uh, Athenians had everything to lose by attacking, and um, all they needed to do is just stick around, just hold the line, that's all. Uh, and so in the Battle of Marathon, uh, you kind of see uh, uh, the Athenians uh, defeat Darius's army, um, and the Persians, they hightailed it back over to Asia Minor. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why the um the Persians lost. Um, but I think there's probably more reasons why the Greeks succeeded. Uh, again, according to Herodotus, so grain of salt here, the Greeks were probably better equipped. Uh, they didn't use like bronze upper body armor at the time. Um, but they used like leathers and linens. Um, the phalanx formation by the Greeks was really good. Uh, you probably can, you know, think of how that looks from the 300 movie. Um, and they had a super long tradition in hand-to-hand combat, whereas the Persian infantry, we're talking about infantry here, were accustomed to a different type of conflict. Um, you know, they were normally uh, infantry slash bowmen, and that's the style of warfare that they were used to. Uh, and that was normally supported by fortifications or siege engines and definitely helped out and supported by cavalry and chariots. And none of those things were available during the Battle of Marathon. Uh, then there was this pincer move that the Greeks did, which I think might have been accidental. So what ended up happening was, uh, you might remember me saying that the uh, Athenians were, were probably outnumbered. And so to make their forces wide enough to prevent the, um, the Persians from, you know, flanking them and getting around them, they had to make their front line super thin, especially the front center, right? And the Persians pressed on that front center and moved inwards, but their flanks, their outside wings, you know, weren't doing so well. So they bolted, right? They, they, they cut and left, they ran, they retreated. So now we've got this center 
that's pushing forward and the flanks on both sides that are retreating. Uh, and then instead of chasing the people who are retreating on the flanks, the Greeks actually pincered the center of the uh, of the Persian forces, like wholly, kind of accidentally. <laughs> um, so that really helped them out a lot because uh, normally they, they should have been pursuing them. And then I also hear about like some people, some historians writing about like how they were braver and shit like that. I'm not going to buy into that nonsense. I, I think a lot of this was accidental and I'm, I think a lot of it was um, equipment and training and geolocation, the high ground. I think those are probably more reasonable reasons why the Persians won this battle. I think that most likely the Battle of Marathon was was sort of a, a freak thing. Yeah, I think happened. it was an accident. <laughs> it was totally um, an accident. Rather than – because we honestly don't really – like the sources that we're using are the ancient sources. So right. we're primarily using Herodotus as the as a storyteller of this. And he didn't really he, – he he's known as the father of history, <clears throat> but he's also known as the father of lies. So that's <laughs> yeah. the other word. Yeah. So a lot of this could not really be accurate. A lot of historians, they're like, oh, yeah, he does have he must have had ancient sources. And it seems like, you know, we, we cross reference some of these stories and it seems like some of his information is good. But a lot of his information was used for narrative purposes, right. like to put the to insert it in the, in the Greek value systems, like his primarily motive was to create a good story. And Marath the Battle of Marathon was a uh, like any battle one it's used as propaganda right so a lot of the i think a lot of the the um kind of tropes about the greeks being braver and the persians just being um like a slave army who only the only, their only real strength within their numbers were ways to demonize the enemy kind of like painting the german hun during world war one yeah um and that and that sort of thing um I don't think that that was actually the reality because w when you think about it, we're talking about the hoplites who were citizen militias versus a professional army. Right. So I'm not sure that the Greeks were trained better than the Persians. But let's let's actually put a pin in that because I want to dive deeper into that that narrative uh, once we get into some of the later battles. Yep. In, in the during this second invasion. Um, but Darius, he's so angry that he plans to lead the next invasion of Greece. However, there's this massive revolt in Egypt, which pushes back his plans. And he ends up dying before he gets a chance to lead the army back into uh, this, this new second invasion of, of mainland Greece. So when Darius dies, Xerxes... Embrace me with the unfinished as your king and as your business. god. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I I'm sorry. I, I love the way that they portrayed Xerxes in 300. I think it was just the most like just ridiculous. Like this is so over the top. I think he was like 10 feet tall, um, and and just like dressed ridiculously, looked ridiculous. Everything about him was ridiculous. But for some reason, I was just so like like attracted to the idea of Xerxes in that film. And every time I read about like this particular period, I can't get that actor and that look out of my head. Just this ridiculous dude riding on a giant throne. That's like being held up by like a thousand people. Do you also think of uh, Gerard Butler when you think of a Spartan? 
Yeah, I can't not at this point. It's so ingrained in in my, you know, in like the lookbook of, you know, <laughs> the ancients. What's interesting about 300 is that, well, it's not interesting, but I, I, I hate going down this route. Like, I hate when I have to admit that the lefty social justice warriors have a point. <laughs> I hate it. But I think the portrayal of Persians in the movie 300 is so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> they make them out to be so decadent and right. terrible right. that I'm like, this is kind of a, I don't want to say racist, but it's something. certainly it's, painting it's the idea <laughs> that the Persians were orcs. Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> like they weren't they're they having were like literally crazy sex parties and shit you know like you know they're just these decadent orientals mm -hmm. who their best fighters were like literally fucking from the ground ninjas ninja death warriors yeah and the only and one spartan soldier was worth a hundred of these dumb slave warriors right that was that was kind of like the the overall messaging. I mean, Herodotus would have a fucking boner like watching that movie. Uh, like this was like pretty much playing right into how he described the events, at least stylistically. Yeah, Herodotus probably would have proved that that movie. Um, but Herodotus wasn't so that narrative of the Persians being super decadent doesn't come from um the ancient historians it comes from the classical historians mm. more so in the early 20th century um 19th century the the, the first writers of ancient greece uh, in a modern context and herodotus actually gives them props when, when when props are due and so does um so do other historians not from that time period but from centuries later like plutarch gives them gives them props but this second invasion of greece it's modern historians again this varies it's varies between 80,000 to 200,000 soldiers the second again invasion, a huge swing <laughs> which is a big swing and yeah. um the the claim the the greek claim from herodotus is that it's millions um this is where you get the like the claims that this is a a sea of men marching and there there is evidence that there this was a really big force so the Persians constructed a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont. So that's the, the Dardanelles Strait um, that goes to Turkey into mainland Europe. They, they have a they have to create a bridge so the troops can walk across. And then they also carve a canal through Mount Athos. Is that real? Um, yeah, it's it's real. Like that's a real they, they really did do that because you can you can't see it now, but you can see it from from like an aerial picture that there was a canal there and. Um, it's over a mile long. That's impressive. It was a pretty impressive accomplishment in engineering at that time. The reason why they build that canal is because uh, Xerxes doesn't want to have the same issues over at Mount Athos because that's where the sea that that's where his father's fleet was destroyed in one of the first campaigns against Greece against right Poseidon. after the Ionian Revolt. So he was. <laughs> Yeah, he was like, I don't want to deal with that. So that's why they carve a canal through there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and like the claim that Herodotus says is just, it was just like a sense of ego, you know. Xerxes is kind of painted as by the by the ancient historians as pretty bad. Like they, 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 they paint Cyrus the Great as very noble. 
and they also they, they paint um, Darius as like super savvy and smart and quick, and they paint Xerxes as the king that lost his way. Mm. You know the 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 end of like the great king, the king of kings. Like this was the decadent king mm. who who uh, ultimately led the Persian Empire to its doom. Ten foot tall, bald, and a whole lot of piercings. Right, and, it, and it's kind of like this romantic vision um, that. Um, that idolizes both Persian and Greek ideals at the same time. Um, but they use Xerxes as a symbol of just complete decadence. Um, and I think they actually kind of captured that in, in the movie 300. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's though what they were going for. The ancient historians didn't really, they didn't as much like make the soldiers out to be orcs. <laughs> right. That was a bit, that was a stretch too far, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the second invasion, um, this army marches through Greece and they don't really see any resistance until Thermopylae. And we, we all know the story here. And and I think we're going to do a separate episode on, on Thermopylae at a later time. So we'll skip all the theatrics, but. Um, anyone who's seen those chiseled abs <laughs> in uh, 300, um, that a team of historians at Oxford University have agreed that their abs probably were that chiseled. <laughs> so um, we're going to have to take the experts' words for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they roll through. They, they roll through Sparta. Ultimately, they roll through Sparta. That's probably what happened. Right. They just they rolled through Sparta and it was a minor it was a minor speed bump. Right. This this force of three hundred Spartans and there were also there were other Greeks there too. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just three hundred Spartans. They they it was a minor speed bump and then they went marching down Greece until they hit Athens. And when they hit Athens, they burned Athens to the ground. <laughs> Meanwhile, roughly the thirty remaining Allied Greek city states and and the Greeks who flee Athens. They establish a new defensive position, and this is the Battle of Salamis. So this, the next big clash would be uh, a naval battle where roughly 380 Greek ships faced off against 500 Persian ships. And the Greeks, they're able to pull this off because they funnel the Persian ships into um, a strait, causing their greater numbers to be a disadvantage. Right. And, and because they were in such a such a tight space, the ships started crashing into each other. Uh, meanwhile, the Greek ships they were stationary and they were able to 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 pick their moment to engage, and they ultimately win because of this. And after this, Xerxes goes home, and I mean you could paint it as a sign of defeat, but most likely he he went home is because part of the mission was done. They did burn down Athens, right. That's what they set out like to do. One of the can, one of the campaigns was to punish Eritrea and Athens. So they they got them. Something. <laughs> it's another thing off their checklist. They get they they burn down Athens. But when he leaves, and he probably had more important shit to do because we don't really know how the Persians looked at the Greeks because Alexander the Great destroyed a lot of the Persian records. He burnt down their capital mm-hmm. and destroyed a lot of their archives. So we don't know a lot of the, we don't really know the Persian side of the story. We're always taking the Greek side of the story. You know, if you look at the conflicting narratives about world war one, you can paint anyone as the bad guy, according to 
selective cherry picked sources. Right. You know, you can make a case for every single one of those powers in World War One to be like the major instigator of that war. Here, we're just left with just the Greek narrative and the Greek narrative only. Right. Maybe the Persians just saw the Greeks as some freak sideshow. They didn't really care too much about. And these were just minor expeditionary forces to, to deal with any rebelling city, state, or, or, or territory. Mm-hmm. There's no proof that the Persians saw this as some um, uber-important regent to uh, dominate and to uh, bring into their empire. Because most of the Near East empires, they saw all the wealth towards the east. Mm-hmm. So towards the Indus, rather than looking at, you know, thinking at the, the west, thinking of the west. Now, when he goes back, Xerxes goes back, he leaves uh, Mardonius in charge. And General Mardonius, he tries to start politicking again. So he tries to get the Greek city-states to fight each other. When that doesn't work... He they actually sack Athens again, and what this prompts is the allied Greeks to to rally together and then take the offensive. And this confrontation takes place at um, it takes place in uh, at Plataea. And in, in, in during this battle, Mardonius is killed, and uh, the Greeks end up effectively winning the war. So the question is. How did this juggernaut get taken down by a bunch of stupid Greek city states? Right, non unified at that Greek city states. <clears throat> so, I think the it's really important to highlight again, like the problem and the challenges when when painting a narrative like this of using ancient sources. The the Persian Wars are part of Greek identity. It's not only part of Greek identity, but it's it's part of just West the Western, Western tradition, identity. yeah, mm-hmm. a Western tradition. You'll see a lot of um, like Victor David Hansen. He's like um, a really a very famous uh, classical historian who specializes in ancient Greece. He's a um, also like a conservative pundit who works at the Hoover Institute. Um, you get a lot of those types mm-hmm. in this field. A lot of those kind of heritage foundation types who are like, oh, the Greek way of war. That's something that you probably heard, mm-hmm. like the Western way of war or the Greek way of war, where, you know, they start talking about um, the Eastern way of war, which is just a bunch of dancing uh, pansies <laughs> running around shooting arrows and running away. Yeah. And then the Greek way of war, which is you get your shields up and your spears up and you march in formation and go right into that enemy right there. That's what our ideal is, the Greek way. I kind of so like your, your explanation of the bunch of pansies shooting arrows and running away because that's, that's super on, on brand for like the, the, re, <laughs> the reality. I mean, it's, it's, on, it's on brand for the reality, but it's also effective yeah, at it that worked. time to do, to do it, that. It, yeah, they... They um, conquered like a lot of territory doing that. So, but let, let's talk about. I keep on say his name three times: Herodotus, Herodotus, Herodotus. <laughs> but you have to, you have to rely on his sources. Um, there are three narrative accounts for this battle of Plataea. One being Herodotus, um, which his sources are biased. 
Um, in addition to, to him, um, we have um, we have other historians who are summarizing him essentially. So um, guys like Diodorus and, and Plutarch, who are other Greek historians, they they come in a later generation, and what they're doing, they're they're summarizing a lot of his work, they're sourcing Herodotus, right? And we're further summarizing him. So like, you yeah, know, hmm, follow, following in Plutarch's footsteps here, right? <laughs> according to according to Herodotus, the Persians fielded, and this is at the Battle of Plataea, three hundred and fifty thousand troops. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. The Greeks, they fielded just over 100,000 troops. Um, so the Persians divided their units uh, by nationality. So um, they would have like, you know, their Indian troops, their their African troops, their their Medes, their, you know, whatever. They, would, they, had, they were governing over dozens, if not hundreds of different ethno-linguistic cultures. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot to pull from, but the the numbers that I get from a website called ancient.eu are uh, the way that this was constructed. The Persians, um, this parentheses it says best troops, um, <laughs> forty thousand. Uh, Medes twenty thousand. The um, Bactrians, the Indians, and the Sakai twenty thousand, and then the pro-Persian Greeks fifty thousand. And that's an important part that we didn't even mention. There was a lot of pro-Greek, pro-Persian, pro-Greek, like pro-Persian Greeks in the Persian army. The ones that bent the knee. The ones that bent the knee or had favorable ties, or maybe were just mercenaries. Um, the Greek army was led by uh, Pausanias, and he is the nephew of King Leonidas. And um, according to her to a Herodotus, the, the, the Greek hoplite forces were from 23 different city-states with the three major contributors being Sparta, Athens, and Corinth. Um, they are contributing the most troops. Um, now, I want to take some stabs at your earlier nor- narrative about the Persians, the Greeks most likely having better army uh, armor mm. or just better equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So traditional Persian infantry tactics 
um, they involve a formation of 10 rings deep, which only the, the first rank created a shield wall. The Persians behind them would start launching arrows. Right. That's the infantry archer uh, uh, regiments. Yeah. So after the enemy was weakened, the guys in the back, they would start acting as, as heavy infantry when they would eventually clash. The Greeks were actually less organized. So each hoplite, they carried their own shield and they would, in a lot of cases, they would be forced to huddle behind the big aspis shield. You know, the shield that you always see with that stands on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, They would, they would cuddle behind an aspis shield uh, of another Greek for protection, but it's, I, I don't, I don't think it's likely to believe that each one of these hoplites had their own Aspis shield. Um, Herodotus also says that the the Persians were were handicapped in close quarter fighting because their spears were shorter than those wielded by the Greeks. <laughs> the the issue is that the the length of these spears most likely wasn't fixed, so. If you go back, just really depends on who's, years, who's supplying them, really. You know, what do you think the chances are that all of these spears are the same some, height by category for the Greeks? Actually, for both sides, there's they're not going to be standard in general because you know, for the Greeks, it's like a conglomeration of twenty three city states. Each of them have their own traditions of of you know creating armaments, and they'd often fight each other, right? So it's uh, unlikely to think that they're all using the same equipment. And then on the on the Persian side. You know, they dominated a bunch of, you know, uh, different ethnic groups uh, and then forced them to, you know, uh, into forced conscription, you know, or like uh, send, send us a bunch of troops and you're good. And so each of those cultures are probably also building their own sets of equipment. So no, like they're not going to have the same thing. You're absolutely right. All those spears are going to be of different sizes, lengths, you know, versatility, things like that. And the, the Dory spear... Um which is like the spear that we think of when we think of the Greek hoplite, that, that really long spear. Mm-hmm. I read from a source, and I forgive me for not remembering the source because I just read it like a couple days ago. Um, they, they did not become, they didn't, apparently they didn't, they didn't become standard until after the Persian War. Oh, that's interesting. Basically, the conclusion was that it was kind of a, a, a mixed bag as far as um, what the Greeks were supplied with. Um, I just want to pull up this source because I don't like not giving people credit. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, while, while you do that, I mean, I can, what I can say is that I think, I think I agree pretty, pretty good, pretty well with the, the, the argument on the spears. I think that there were probably a lot of different armaments, um, on both sides of the battlefield. And in my opinion, I think that's, that's not necessarily the issue when, when I'm, when I, some of the sources I've looked at. They were mostly pointing out the fact that the um, the Persian infantry uh, worked best when they were supported by uh, fortifications or when they were supported by chariots and and uh, and um, you know uh, cavalry, which they didn't have uh, available in, in in many of the battles um, that they fought against the Greeks. That really put them at a big disadvantage. I found the source. It's by uh, Roel Konijnegic. Yeah, I'm a- I did the best I can <laughs> on that one. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, 
according to him, it was um, that that spear wasn't used until until later That's on. That's interesting. Or at least wasn't standard wasn't standardized until later on. Um, but yeah, one of the big major themes is that the Greeks were able to win a Plataea because the Persians couldn't fight at at close range. They relied way too much on the on, on light infantry and, and archers. <clears throat> and Herodotus says, I have the quote up. What hurt them the most was that, that their outfits lacked armor. Mm-hmm. Um, they fight like naked men. Yeah, that's um, bullshit. <laughs> the naked what, part is totally bullshit. Yeah, exactly. And and the problem is is that this this contradicts other statements that he had already said about the Persians. Mm-hmm. So when describing the immortals, so this is like their they're good infantry. They're really good soldiers. Um, they wear curious made of iron scales and carry gira, gira, large wicker shields. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I'm no expert on ancient armor, but sounds pretty good to me. I'm wondering if you can compare that to the Greek armor, or if there's at least some comparison. Um, the question is, why did Herodotus bring that as part of his narrative? Like, why was that like, oh, they lacked armor? Um, what a historian is probably going to point out, like a modern day historian who is looking at these stories as a little bit more favorable than, than we're trying to, is that they're going to say something like, well, the armor was only for the elite troops, not the regular rank and file. It's probably but that true, assumes... Right? Which is which is probably which is a fair point, but then you'd have to apply that same logic to the to Greeks. The Greek <laughs> exactly. If the Persians aren't uniformly stacked with armor, what would make you think that these divided city states were uniformly stacked with armor? It's the same argument for the spears, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the same argument, and according to a lot of these sources, the the only thing that the Persians didn't have that the Greeks had were the the shin guards. The, so that most likely wasn't a um, a life changing thing, especially if you're not on if you're not uh, riding a horse. You know, not having the the cuirass um, wouldn't be like a life or death thing. Like, oh no, I got to go run back and grab my shin guards. <laughs> God forbid they hit me in the shins. That would hurt a lot. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you forget your shield, then that's a big problem. Right. But so it was unlikely that um, it was unlikely that these were all that each Greek soldier had this uniform army. No. I, I just I just don't buy that narrative that the Greeks were these cohesive units that thought as one and acted as one and were all just standardized with this equipment that made them basically invincible to these. Persians with their weak little spears and their stupid dumb arrows. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to speculate on a lot of these, a lot of these narratives about the the differences in in uh, um, in, in the equipment. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting is that Plutarch he apparently so for, Plutarch comes around four hundred years later, at the very least four hundred years after the war. Uh, the Greco-Persian Wars, he's offended by Herodotus saying that you can't say that the Persians fought naked because then that discredits the Spartan victory. Right. 
So like, what are you doing saying that they were so unarmed? That hurts the narrative of Greek supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course they were going to win if they were all just running around with their dicks hanging out, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you can't say that during the Iraq war, we just bombed a bunch of school children. <laughs> well, you can well, say that. what happened. <laughs> that, well, you can say that. You can't say that during the war in Afghanistan, we just killed a bunch of goat farmers. Well, that's kind of what happened. You, can yeah, also you say can't that. say it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the way that this battle is kind of painted is that, um, again, like the Persians were a combination of effeminate archers and slaves that their only value was being a slave and having more slaves than you had free Greek hoplites. And that was their major advantage fighting you. Um, and these Greek hoplites were just so disciplined and so strong. Uh, the Western way of war sounds like a very neoconservative type thing. And I'm pretty sure I've seen neoconservatives talk about this uh, at length. So that's how you know that it's, uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen a lot of stuff about Robert Kagan, write A lot about this mm-hmm. and, you know, anything, anytime you see a neoconservative endorse an idea, um, it's either, it's probably some type of uh, fantastic view on, on history. Like it's some weird <laughs> way to, uh, to, uh, to mythalize so that. That's not a good word. I'm trying to think of a, to fantasize, to perhaps. fantasize yeah. about these and, uh, uh, fetishize fetishize is a good one too. fetishize yeah. the these these uh ancient battles because you can use that as part of your world your worldview as for western supremacy man i'm not liking how i'm talking like a leftist right now but i sometimes i just can't help <laughs> you it. you know it, um, it works for this <laughs> it works it were it were it, i mean sometimes they're right um <laughs> yeah so the other thing is that i had mentioned that herodotus he had, he himself says that the Persians they they lack strength nor nor courage. They uh, neither so lack strength nor courage. Right, right. He respected them. In reality, I'm sure the Greek commanders at the time respected them as well and knew how risky it was to have yeah. a pitched battle with the Persians. At that point, the only victory they have they had was at Marathon, which might have been an accident. <laughs> which who the hell who the hell knows what happened? Right. So General Mardonius, um, he was a seasoned general and he had a hard, he had a battle hardened professional army. Um, Mardonius actually had challenged his Spartans to a one on one match. So he basically said, like, hey, I'll bring my best a thousand guys and you bring your best a thousand guys and we'll duke it out at this, at this planned place. And we, there's no need to have this big war. Just, you know, you bring your guys, I bring my guys, same numbers. Let's do it. I'm not sure about the the numbers, the 1,000 guys, but it was something along those lines. And the Spartans said no. They're like, no, we're not doing that. Man for man, the best Greek fighters of that time may have not considered themselves better than the Persian equivalents. Maybe. And besides the Spartans, the average Greek soldier who was fighting in the Persian war was most likely an amateur militiamen. They're militiamen. They had limited training. These weren't professional armies from the Roman empire. These were farmers, artisans, dudes, mostly farmers. Mm -hmm. 
shopkeepers. They're just like local landowners. Um, one of the reasons why there is an increase in, in, in hoplites during this era is because prior to uh, prior to the war, there was a lot of land reforming that gave that limited the power of oligarchs in Greece and gave more access to land to more people. And you needed land to have the right to the fight in the army. Um, you needed that to kind of there's that barrier to entry to enter the armed forces. It's kind of funny because back in like the ancient world and like you see this in Rome and Greece, there's a barrier to entry to join the army. Like you have to be like a landowner. Now the army just recruits the poorest people in the country to join. Right. Just come and be a soldier. It's like if anything, come we want you world, to have a kiddo. lot of debt. <laughs> right? Come on, kid. Don't you want to see the world? Don't you want free we'll health care country. free we'll education? South America. Free education. Free health care. Get the chance to... You get the chance to fight for Uncle Sam, earn a living, and maybe you kill a couple of goat farmers. That's dark. <laughs> yeah, well, we can't stray too much from our origins. Yeah. So, um, in reality, like the hoplite formation could have been more of a crowd of soldiers right. than like some type of heavy formation. Um, in addition, you have to take into account that the Greeks had no cavalry. Yep. The Persians did. Yep, yep, yep. Greece is not exact. Southern Greece is not exactly a place where horses are gro- horses are grown. Where horses are bred. <laughs> yeah, it's just a bunch um, of mountains, a lot of beaches, a lot of marshes. It's not like great horse territory. It's not like a like a like a grassy steppe, you know. The grassy knoll. Yeah, it's not that. That's not what it is. It's pe- One of the reasons why um, Philip II is able to revolutionize. Um, Macedon and, and just make this like juggernaut army that conquers the entire world, known world. Philip II is Alexander the Great's dad, who who basically uh, Alexander the Great inherited his army from him. Uh, it's because up north in, in Macedon, it's it's re- removed from the city states, and it's a lot less. Gra- there's a lot more grassland and a lot less mountains, so they were able to introduce cavalry to an already kind of a mature army uh phalanx and mature type uh mature a mature professional soldier collapse uh class mm-hmm. and what they had up in in macedon um philip was a hostage in thrace no not in, Thrace, in thebes he was a he was a hostage in thebes and um he had learned like all the ancient tactics because thebes was a was a was kind of rivaling sparta at that time this is later not during this time this is about probably about 50 60 years later uh thebes was like a rival to sparta and when it came to uh just military power and um philip ii learned from them and then he he combined that with like using cavalry and that's how they created the army that conquered pretty much everything in its path However, I digress too much. Um, so a phalanx would probably hold up against a cavalry charge, but horse archers would probably wear them down. Mm. And I understand that arrows are way less ineffective against the phalanx, but because you, because your the arrows are have to penetrate way too many things for them to hit their target. Right, you know, like, right, right. Like not only you can hit the spear on top, you can hit the shield, you can hit the 
obviously armored. So it's hard. It, it's, it's It would be hard. But you have to think after a fucking sea of arrows that some of them hit. Right. And they do it multiple times. Right. If you're just launching nonstop arrows, I mean, how... There's only so long you can hold your shield above your head, <laughs> you know? And reading Herodotus, he even says how when the Spartans are under this barrage, they're having a really, they're suffering and they're having a real bad time. And, um, you know, he talks about them. Um, I think he's, they're like looking for oracle signs and things like that to get out of it. So it's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Um, most likely in going through this, the question still becomes, so with all this, like, you know, if there wasn't some, um, major advantage on the Greek side, as far as their tactics and their, and their soldier class and their armor. So how the hell did they win? Especially if they didn't have the higher numbers. Um, I think most likely, their numbers were evenly matched, or at least closer to Meaning, even than than what we are led to, or, believe. or closer or closer to even than than people like to believe. Some historians go as far to say that the Greeks could have out actually outnumbered the Persian troops, because when you talk about like oh the massive Persian army of millions, we're talking about a, an army that if not fielded all together, it's spread out across the rest of their empire. Right. Their empire is really is large. So it's out doing other things besides, you know, fighting over some fucking city-states in Greece. Right. And we're, we're still Norton not, the has, jury's not still out about whether, like, how seriously, you know, Persia actually wanted to conquer Greece. Or if they just had a little grudge that they needed to take care of either, which is what we mentioned before. So we're not even sure exactly how committed they were or how many people they committed to it. Well... To take this back a bit, so Mar- when Mardonius, when he challenged the Spartans to like this all-star match thing mm-hmm. with a predetermined amount of troops, right. um, and the Spartans sa- said no, um, maybe Mardonius, the reason why he said that is because secretly he was worried about the Greek numbers. Mm. So this is just speculation, but you just have to grant this possibility um, maybe he was concerned that the Greeks outnumber them. So he was like, oh, maybe they think I have a large, larger army. In reality, we're probably a little bit more even than they think. I rather, I'm more confident in my own soldiers' abilities against the Spartans than I do on, in an in a open pitch battle where I don't know where anything could happen. Right. This way I could pick the terrain and all, and and, and uh, I can, we, can, we can agree upon the terrain and I can pick my best guys and Make sure that nothing out of the ordinary happens. He seemed to be more confident doing that. So who knows? This is all complete speculation, um, just based off some of the the uh, reports and some of the sources and stories and myth that come out of this this very epic story. Um, but whatever led the victor led the Greeks to victory uh, at this battle. And this was the, the deciding factor. Um, I, I think there's no doubt that at the very least their uh, stubbornness to surrender um, and their unbreakable will uh, led to them the winning. Cause 
they had to have had an unbreakable will to not have lost that. Um, and the way they actually win is that some Spartan throws a rock at Mar- the Mardonius and he kills him. He throws a rock at his head. <laughs> so he gets up to the line and it could have been out of complete desperation. He gets up, wham, he's down. And then in battles like that in the old days, you kill your general. A lot of times uh, the, the morale just drops throughout the rest of the army. So that could have been very likely. Um, but when you think about it, after the war and the Persians go home, and there's another battle too, um, but this is the major battle to wrap things up that, that wrap up the, the Persian threat in Greece. Um, the Persians go back and you know they thrive for another 100 years. And what they decide to do instead of fighting the Greeks, they just use them as proxies, <laughs> meaning that they start because after this unit, this temporary unity that happens in Greece between mainly Athens and Sparta, they they fight. Right. They go to war with back each to other. infighting. Right. They go it's back to infighting, and way more Greeks died in the Peloponnesian Wars than they did in the Greco-Persian Wars. It was a way more destructive conflict. Um, And it it was just way bloodier. It was was worse. The Persians would would finance, mostly Sparta, to fight Athens, and then vice versa. They would fund both sides of it. So I guess they had learned, like, why send troops over here? We can just, like, fund whatever army fits our geopolitical interests at this time. And hmm. it's kind of funny that the Spartans use the Spartans are always seen as like, Oh, we like look at Sparta. They, they're unbreakable. Will they'll never been to the Persians. Well, a lot of these Spartans, they became mercenaries right. or they were financed by the Persians after the war. The, you know, so Spartan what the hell are campaign you about? finance reform. They needed it, man. Cause they were taking a lot of donations. <laughs> From the Persian but that's um, so yeah, that's that For, foreign lobbies because fucking that that Iranian lobby <laughs> way so way too much influence over Congress. Yeah, um, I guess we're wrapping things up because um, we're at almost an hour and thirty minutes or so. Um, do you even want to attempt to talk about the politics or I, I got, I got one, I got one thing after, after talking about all of this. So we asked the question, how were the Greeks able to win? And we were just like, you know, there's, there's like, it seems unfeasible. Right. And now as obviously what's going on where, you know, we've got a, a number of Trump supporters who just recently, you know, uh, sieged the, uh, the Capitol building. We got to ask ourselves, how the fuck, were they able to break into the Capitol building? You know, like we've been spending billions of dollars on our professional army and we've been, you know, arming our police to act as quasi soldiers for basically ever. But, you know, just a couple of like probably not very stable folks storm, just like just walk in, break a couple windows, go in, take a shit on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Like, how the fuck were they able to do that? You know, like, just just walk in, you know? So the number one takeaway that I've, I've gotten from this is that um, it has made liberals 
use the language that you would hear someone in like the film Star Wars use like these are rebels this is an insurrection <laughs> yeah. destroy the rebels yeah. I've never and yeah. my um my girlfriend listens to to some Instagram chick who was talking who's not even like in politics like she's not a political instagrammer but she was like this is an insurrection in our state they're breaking away from the union the rebels must be quashed <laughs> yeah and i was just like what like this sounds like the who's a general in star the admiral in star it's wars it's like grand vice uh, grand moff gideon or some shit like that you know like she she sounded like him yeah um it sounds like a lot of these people are are mentally unstable who broke in. Uh, I didn't want to dive too deep into this political thing because I've been trying to take a break from from politics. Uh, some things just grab your attention. Um, however, just always remember that once things get violent, um, things have a tendency to go really wrong. So you should always try to avoid that. At all costs. Yeah. Because it, once things get hit a violent level, usually it's... The, there's either no way there's no way to go back or things just can spiral completely out of control. Uh, so just don't do anything stupid. Yep. Um, but yeah. Um, anything else? Nope. All right. Well, thanks guys for listening to another episode of bro history. Uh, we always appreciate it when you join us and give us a listen. Um, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to help us grow. So if you're on Apple, just go up to that star thingy, press the five star button, and then give us a nice little review. Say, hey, I love your podcast. You guys are both great, and I can tell by your voice that you're both very handsome. <laughs> that Just asking for that type of review. Yep. <laughs> um, so if you can go ahead and do that. Um, we also have a Patreon Um with the Patreon account, you can support the show and uh, you'll also get access to our Slack account um, where we chat about stuff and shoot ideas and shoot the shit. Um, we have a YouTube channel as well, uh, Bro History at you, at uh, dash YouTube. Um, no, YouTube dash Bro History, excuse me. It's 12 at night, so. Um, We're getting there. <laughs> usually, ar- usually around this time, I sound like a little more incoherent than usual so um i guess we'll just wrap this one up but uh let us know what you think um appreciate it and peace peace My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.